think so. I think we're moving now into a political arena. And I think that what Negroes are now tampering in, what they're tampering with, will touch the entire country to be very precise. For example, many Negroes who have registered to vote have been evicted from their lands in Lowndes County. People who have worked on, on plantations for 35, 40 years because they've registered to vote have been evicted. So that raises a philosophical question, not only for us, but for the whole country. Can property-less people be made as equal as property owners through the vote? Because this is the first time in the country that Negroes will be organized for their own political interest, and they will form their own party and move along those interests as they see fit. It is unlike Negroes across the country who are registered in the Democratic Party, but are not organized for their own interests. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Former president and his supporters have decided the only way for them to win is to suppress your vote and subvert our election. It's undemocratic, and frankly, it's un-American. Those who stormed this capital and those who instigated and incited those who called on them to do so held a dagger at the throat of America and American democracy. Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Joining us here at Our Common Ground, I am Janice Graham. On January 22nd, 2022, thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG and join the discussion that goes on, the exchange that goes on, 
during the progress of this broadcast. We're we're really glad to to have you. This has been a tough week when you think about the Ote and feeling freedom. Somehow it has not been good, and we're going to talk about that tonight. Our um, focus on this broadcast is shorting the odds, states' right race to anocracy. And I will tell you all about what all of that means as we progress. Uh, Elle Michelle just hit the chat room, bringing her popcorn and her... uh, Ice tea? Okay. (laughs) Welcome uh, to all of you. I do want to, as it has been my practice uh, during this pandemic, to remind you that the United States of America remains in a pandemic. There is a virus that is dangerous. And we have been given some safety protocols that I'd like all of my listeners to to follow, washing hands, keeping your hands out of your face. You know, that was one that we kind of forgot about, but I want to bring that one up tonight. Keep your hands out of your face, wash your hands, wear masks in public, and if you have people who are going out into the public, um, and um, live in your households. Uh, you should be cautious. Uh, you should be careful, and you should be mindful that mass helps to prevent transmission of this COVID-19 Omicron, which has really taken over yesterday. Uh, January 21st, I didn't check the stats coming in tonight, but uh, yesterday over 137,000 people died from COVID-19 Omicron or complications caused by the infection of the virus. Folks, I got it from the scientists. That's and the mathematicians and the statisticians. That's twin. That's one person dying every 22 seconds on yesterday. And if you want to believe what you want to believe, believe it. But understand that we are still in a pandemic. I was out today. Uh, my community had a the shredding day. <laughs> I don't know if your community has a shredding day, but my community had a shredding day. And it was a professional shredding service being provided to the residents of my community. And I had boxes and bags and boxes of junk mail old mail. I mean, I have a shredder, but have you ever tried to, I mean, even the volume. I mean, I was taking government documents. <laughs> I'm talking about those 300-page reports that I wrote over a 20-plus year career. 
I was taking everything I could find. I was knocking out my garage, my closets, and uh, all this junk mail. In Florida, when you live in Florida, you get a lot of junk mail. If you are a senior in Florida, you get even more junk mail. I had two bags, you know those large yard uh, green bags? Sometimes they're black, sometimes they're beige, whatever. But they're for trash cleaning up the yard. I had two of those and two of the tall king-size bags that go into a kitchen and then one bag that goes in the garbage. And it was a really delightful process. I thought I was going to be standing in in the car in a line of cars. I drove right in, pulled right up. The guys from the shredding company, they came and they opened the door. It was contactless. They opened the door, they took the bags, and I'm done with junk mail for a while. I, my, my, I made a, a New Year's resolution. Junk mail will go into the shredder the day that it comes in. I mean, you throw away your junk mail because you do, you do want to uh, uh, have some security around personal information. And most of the junk mail that I get has my name and address, um, and you know you see the commercials about the pin that you that that doesn't work. So I have my shredder right under my desk, and I have been very good in the last couple of months of tearing off the back of catalogs. I mean, how many catalogs and magazines can you get? Um, And uh, if I don't want the catalog, which I generally don't want because we're in a pandemic, I don't need anything. So I I throw, I have, I recycle and I put the, the, the catalog in the recycle bin and the back with my name and address and all that stuff on it. I put it on top of the in a, a little box that I have on the shredder. That was full. I had to put that in the bag. So my my New Year's resolution for 2022 going forward is to shred every day. Okay, and I don't know if y'all want to be on team shredding, but you can join the team shredding at our common ground because that was way out of control. Um, Today is the 22nd. I guess every month has a 22nd in the year 2022. But it struck me today while I was out, something I very rarely do. I don't know. I, I guess I'm looking for meaning in the pandemic. I'm looking for meaning in my life besides broadcasting Um, And so I thought there was some meaning in today's the 22nd of the year 2022, so I bought a lottery ticket. The guy says to me, how many? And I said, one. (laughs) And he said, said, oh, well, okay. So um, we'll see how that goes and whether there really was any meaning in this whole thing, one, twenty-two, 
2022, because I was writing it a lot, I guess, and it was striking me. So as we look for meaning in our lives, sometimes we have to go on the light side. And that was my light side of finding meaning in your life, because this pandemic has been really hard on people, very hard. There are more mental health um, victims or uh, patients um, than I think that we acknowledge with the isolation, the confusion, and the pressure and stress of people going out to work. Uh, people in your family get COVID, and then you just saw them last weekend, and now you got to find a test, get the test, wait for the test, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so. I, I, I think that what we need, need to be mindful of is we uh, need to look at how you fill the void. And I'm not going to play psychiatrist on the radio. I never do, never will. But I, I've heard enough. I get enough uh, email uh, about um things that I mentioned on the radio, like I color, uh, that I've been using uh, virtual reality, a virtual reality tool uh, to go deep sea diving. I, I'm, I'm, I'm using Oculus and deep sea diving and doing travel logs and sitting at, at the river. I do a lot of what they call immersion virtual uh, experiences with my Oculus, and one day we'll talk about that. So uh, let's get back to the pressing issues of the day. As you know, uh, Al Michelle Odom is a senior producer of If America Fails, The Coming Tyranny, which is a an 11 um episode series looking at the issues and the potential and realities of that potential of the fail of American democracy, of a failed state, looking at issues of fascism and authoritarianism, anocracy, um, um, <clears throat> uh, theocracy, and we have, I'm, I'm co-hosting with her, and we have had two episodes thus far every Thursday night at 8 p.m. So, uh, week before last, we had the co-host of the pod, Muck Rake podcast, Jared Yates Sexton. And one of the things he did during the broadcast was to give us a good summary of how authoritarianism and fascism and political oppressive systems have seeped into our society. And I'm going to share some parts of that interview with you tonight. You know, MSNBC is not, not, not fooling you when, when they say the more you know. 
the more you understand, and this is one of the reasons that uh, if you were with me week before last and Michelle was uh, with me talking about this series, If America Fails, one of the reasons that we, one of the reasons that we are doing this and we're looking at The Handmaid's Tale, the book and the Hulu TV production as a basis for these discussions is because as you get information and understand governmental systems, you begin to see and and you are able to identify what you see before you. You're able to synthesize all the news, the noise, the commentators, the analysis of what's happening in our country, Uh, the issues of voter suppression and surveillance. And um, right now we're talking about the remnants of a new kind of war between uh, the Ukraine, uh, between Ukraine and Russia. And that has some meaning in terms of not only foreign affairs, but domestic affairs. We've been doing, you've been hearing a lot of things about um, the insurrection and, um, you know, uh, the white supremacy groups and a coming uh, civil war and the Confederacy moving into many areas in this country. So I, I think that what Jared Yates Sexton did in our in If America Fails discussion was give us a basis. You know, like uh, about six months ago, I was with Pascal Robert, the thought merchant and the co-host of This Is Revolution, and we were talking about the Weimar Democratic Republic that was in place when Hitler took over the German and his Nazi party took over the German um, government. It was a democracy that they replaced. And there are some elements, so we're gonna. Uh, I'm gonna share that with you. Uh, the other part of what we want to cover tonight is this whole issue about what's happening uh, around the U.S. Senate unwillingness to pass the two voter rights bills on Tuesday and what the Biden administration, what the Democrats in both the House and the Senate, and you heard a lot of talking about these two people, Senator Kirsten Sinema and Senator Joe Manchin, one from West Virginia, the other from Arizona, and they were Democrats who refused to vote for the passage for the filibuster so that there could be a passage to 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 carve out the filibuster 
so that there would uh, be an opportunity to pass the two bills, two bills for which uh, the Biden administration asked for black votes. That was one of the promises. Um, The Build Back Better bill still has to come before uh, the, the Senate, and there is a problem because the Senate is holding up the Biden administration's agenda and these bills that will benefit all Americans uh, based upon political hacking. It's just political hacking. It's the same thing that they did, uh, This the Senate did to President Barack Obama. So w- we want to take a look at what are some of the issues, and I'm going to uh, review with you uh, two two Supreme Court decisions around voting. One has to do with uh, Shelby County versus Holder, which is how the Supreme Court gutted the Voter Rights Bill of 1968. And then uh, looking at what the Supreme Court has done around the issue of redistricting because we have to be very careful in looking at the voting rights laws, voting laws that are being placed uh, all across this country to limit access, especially for black people, Native American, uh, brown people, and young people who are not buying into their capitalistic authoritarianism or capitalistic, their neoliberalism, neoliberal uh, agenda. So we're going to talk about all of those things. And, you know, uh, what is disturbing to me, I'm in my now in my 36th year of broadcasting, and I am getting the sense that people really don't want to hear it. They just want to go into their cocoon, you know, put a big condom on and float in the air. And it's very disturbing because not only do we have to keep our eye on the white supremacist groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and the rest of them who chant uh, their anti-vax, their anti-democratic, all of these things are pressing on the crisis of democracy. And there's another group that we don't talk about too much, and I want to introduce you to a movement called the Redoubters. They are people who are doubting everything that government says has to offer and the media, and they're doing it. Their foundation is the right-wing evangelical movement, and we're going to be talking about that. Now, here's the other thing. When I close this broadcast tonight, I will be launching myself into a new journey around the sun. I will be going into my 72nd birthday. 
So we're going to have a little party, not a long party, but a little party. Our number is 347-838-9852, and if you'd like to call us, I'm going to be taking calls um, um, uh, about all of these issues. But let me share with you um, Jarrett Yates Sexton on the issues that are raised by The Handmaid's Tale, but issues in front of us about an authoritarian form of government that is seeping into the United States and the crisis under which democracy finds itself. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it being invited to do this. I think this is a really important project. And unfortunately, it is a conversation that is not only needed, but it's a conversation that people are either unwilling to have or are afraid to have. And I I have to tell you, to give you a little bit of background on, on myself and how I've arrived at this moment, before I do that, I want to say that I, I think it's very apt that for the basis of this discussion that you have gestured towards the handmaid's tale because what we are actually looking at right now the circumstances and the crises that we are facing uh it it is not just white patriarchal dominion we are talking about white patriarchal theocratic dominion the really frightening thing and i'll get more into this as we go along is that The Handmaid's Tale, while it's like a horrific, nightmarish dystopia, it might turn out to be dated by the fact that it was created and written in the era that it was. And the circumstances that we now face based with surveillance, technology, uh, all, all of the tools that an aspiring theocratic dictator or authoritarian might have at their disposal could make The Handmaid's Tale look quaint almost in comparison. Uh, So I'm going to get more into that, but before I do, I want to give a little bit of background. I want to catch everybody up a little bit on on what is going on, how we've arrived at this point, what the problem is, and what the specific threat is that we face. Um, Today was a really terrible day, and I assume if you're tuning in right now, it means that you care about politics and that you pay attention, and that uh, days like these are the kind that, that try your your will and your patience, and uh, it's demoralizing and crushing. Um, What we watched today with the United States Senate and with the United States Supreme Court is we watched the mechanisms in place within the United States of America that are meant to thwart democracy and progress and basically to crush human dignity underneath its heel. The United States Senate was created specifically by a group of wealthy white slaveholding men to privilege wealthy white slaveholding men. Uh, As they met and framed the Constitution of the United States of America, the conversations that they had 
Um, a lot of people are not very familiar with how the Constitution was actually framed and how it came about. It's a really damning indictment to look into the conversations in which these white, wealthy, slaveholding men made decisions that they were the rightful rulers of the world. And whenever we talk about the founding of the United States of America, we have this mythology where we talk about it as if, you know, these men were inspired by uh, divinity or that they were moved towards liberty, equality, and freedom, when in fact the entire idea was to create a one-party system, to not have multiple parties, but to have a ruling, white, wealthy, slaveholding elite that controlled the United States of America and gave the illusion of representative democracy to everybody else while denying humanity, uh, citizenship, and even the idea that these people were human. We're talking about, obviously, slaves, women, and the poor. What happened today and what we continue to watch with representative bodies like the United States Senate and the Supreme Court, it's by design. It's there to privilege the same people that it originally privileged, again, white, wealthy men for the most part. Uh, that is where we are today, and there is an incredible amount of danger that is building that people simply do not want to discuss. They do not want to look at. Uh, they want to bury their head in the sands and pretend that everything will be okay. The majority of this is done by a political and journalist media class that most of them are white and wealthy. And in order for them to accurately diagnose what is going on, it would mean admitting that they are part of the problem, that they profit from the problem, and that they have arrived at their places in their careers and in their lives in part because of a white supremacist patriarchal system. This keeps people from being able to see the forest, so to speak, or to see the problem. Uh, for myself, uh, a little bit of background of how I've arrived at the point where I am, um, back in 2015, 2016, um, kind of as a hobby, uh, you know, I was interested in politics. I started going to Donald Trump rallies. And as I was doing that, um, what I noticed was that something was gaining force and momentum and, and, and power within America. Um, I saw some really ugly stuff in these rallies. I heard conversations among people about civil wars. Uh, I heard talk about arresting journalists and politicians, executing them. Um, you know, obviously I heard a lot of anti-democratic authoritarian type activity. And back in 2016, as I was doing this and going into these rallies, I, I was suspicious and I knew what I had seen, but I was not able to put together the puzzle pieces yet because the American education system does not tell you what is going on. It does not explain why we have arrived at this current moment in our political and, and, and social situation. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't present to us the vocabulary needed. It doesn't prepare us to recognize growing authoritarianism. It doesn't give us the ability to understand what is going on. Uh, in my own life, because I saw this and it freaked me out, quite frankly, and I started ringing the, ringing the alarm bell, 
I was being told by people constantly, it was like, you're being hysterical, you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, the American political system will spit Donald Trump out. There's no possibility that he could ever be president. Uh, you know, this is just a fad. The people that you're hearing are not representative of a larger movement. And what I noticed, though, was that my instincts were proving correct, not just as Donald Trump was elected president of the United States of America, but as what I was witnessing started to coalesce and metastasize. Before I go forward and talk about what I've learned, I want to state very clearly and very definitively, this conversation that we're having tonight about the dangers that we're facing, this is not just about Donald Trump. This, and he is an incredibly dangerous individual. But Donald Trump is not an ideologue. Donald Trump is not a competent, principled person. Donald Trump is more or less a bull in a china shop who, through his self-serving narcissism and lack of utter shame, made it apparently clear to the right wing and to a lot of the people that I'm going to talk about tonight that liberal democracy, the United States of America, and the institutions that we have learned to trust, that they are broken. And not just broken, but that they could be overrun via authoritarian ideas. So as we talk about this, I will mention Donald Trump, but this is not just about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a symptom of a larger disease. He is not the disease proper. This thing has been churning and growing for much, much longer than, Donald, than when Donald Trump came down the golden escalator in Trump Tower in New York City. So I've had to do the background research into what is happening. And to be honest, it is very clear how we've arrived at this point. It's very clear why we face the problems that we do. It's the denial and the delusion of the people who are responsible for trying to stop it or even to cover it and talk about it that exacerbates the problem. So what I want to do very, very quickly is get people up to date of how we have arrived where we are. And I've already started by talking about the founding, but I want to fast forward into the 1980s and the 1990s. And this is as the Cold War was coming to a conclusion. As the Cold War was finishing, there was room for something to change. As America was no longer facing the Soviet Union, there was room for expansion. A lot of people began to talk about the possibility that American-style liberal democracy and capitalism would be the final type of government, the final type of idea that would circle the world and, and lead to infinite peace, prosperity. It would allow all of us to sort of rise up into a, a mythical middle class. The problem is that that was never going to be the case. The idea that we're getting ready to discuss is uh, termed neoliberalism. And it's a little bit, it, it feels a little bit strange when we start talking about what this is. We always, you know, we always assume that liberalism means the left or the Democratic Party. But neoliberalism is actually an ideology that is on both sides of the aisle. With the Democrats, the Republicans, independents, it has more or less taken over the entire uh, ideological spectrum within the United States, but also around the world. This was introduced by not Ronald Reagan, but the think tanks and the millionaires and the billionaires who funded and more or less controlled Ronald Reagan. And as Reagan introduces this, there is an idea. And the idea behind neoliberalism is this. It's that the government should not invest in human projects 
uh, it shouldn't build people homes. It shouldn't invest in health care. It shouldn't invest in education. Um, to do so would be tyrannical, right? Because what's most important about liberal democracy, uh, neoliberals believe, is allowing the market to make decisions. It's allowing businesses and corporations because they are better than us. That's what they truly believe, much like the founders believed. If you have wealth, that means that you are better than everybody else. But the truth is, if you have wealth, it's because, for the most part, most of the time, it means that you have benefited from the privilege of being from a long line of wealthy people, and particularly being white men. So this game of letting loose these markets uh, has, has gone around. This is why your healthcare sucks. This is why your dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. This is why there's hardly any such thing as a labor union anymore. Why you worked harder, why you have to have multiple jobs is because the government has more or less been co-opted by the wealthy and the powerful at this point. They're not supposed to give you money. They're not supposed to aid you. They're not supposed to help you. Whenever there's something like a pandemic that happens, you know, there's really not much that the government can do. One of the big glimpses that we got of this on a national or international stage was Hurricane Katrina. And of course there were you know, prejudices that played into this, incompetence that played into this, but the government couldn't go and help people, right? Because like, that's not what the government does. The government makes sure that the economy works. And that's why we have this idea of essential workers. That's why we're just throwing people into the pandemic and expecting them to die for their jobs. Now, this idea of neoliberalism, one of the reasons why neoliberalism became the project of the world as it was birthed in America is because they don't want your vote to count, because they don't think that you're smart enough for your vote to count. You're not an expert. You're not reading all the polls. You're not educated like these people. You're not specialized in economics. How could you possibly ever you know, choose a candidate based on who would run the economy the best. And so what do they believe? They believe that democracy is incredibly dangerous because if you are constantly making decisions about what the country should do, you might get in their way. You might mess up their business schedule. You might mess up their profits. So what neoliberalism does is it takes away your ability to vote and choose things and it gives you what they call quote unquote consumer sovereignty, which means that you're not voting in the voting booth anymore. You're voting with your dollar. You're voting which corporation you're going to give your money. You're voting which healthcare company you're going to give your money. And so that kind of inoculates government away from you. That's one of the reasons why so much of this makes you feel powerless is by design. They want you to feel powerless. The exact same way that the founders of the United States of America wanted you to feel powerless. And yet, there's still this charade that goes on, right? We still go out and vote. We still elect presidents. We still elect senators and representatives and, and governors and all of that. And they do change your life based on things like whether or not you're going to have the ability to choose what you do with your body. Uh, you know, obviously we have, uh, you know, uh, we have a... <laughs> We have a power structure at this point that is probably going to start going after gay Americans, transgender Americans, discriminating people of color across the board. That's the only thing that the government can do is regulate those types of things. It can't help you. This is why Congress is in a gridlock all the time, because it's by design. The reason Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema do the things they do, and by the way, they're not the only Democrats 
who don't want to break the filibuster and don't want to give you money and don't want to aid or help the American people at all is because they're neoliberals. They believe that the government shouldn't be in the business of doing those things. They would much rather meet and discuss things and then vote those things down so nothing really happens. Now, another quick little note about neoliberalism, it really enjoys authoritarianism. As a matter of fact, it was birthed using authoritarianism and dictators. Uh, in particular, it happened in Chile in the 1970s and the 1980s when Pinochet took over Chile after deposing a socialist leader. Uh, the neoliberals went into Chile because they loved the idea of being able to push their ideas using a dictator. Why? Because, you know, the dictator is more than happy to crush labor unions. The dictator is more than happy to make sure that everybody stays in line. There aren't going to be labor strikes. There's not going to be a lot of arguments. And on top of that, you can just pay people hardly anything because they're afraid of the dictator. And that's what they did in Chile. And you actually go back and you look at the neoliberals like Friedrich Hayek. He's one of these main neoliberal founders. They said it out loud. They loved authoritarians. They love dictators. They actually believe that authoritarians and dictators, you know, they actually protected property rights and profits more than democratically elected leaders. So you're seeing a little bit of where we're going here, which is that the power structure in the United States of America, they are fine with what's going on. As a matter of fact, they're not just fine with it, they're funding it. Because fascism comes from a point when capitalism is in trouble. When capitalism is in trouble, fascists come in, are usually paid by the people who have a ton of money in the corporations that have all the money. They pay the fascists and support them to make sure that you go to work, that your labor union is destroyed, and that you just shut up, and that you're so afraid of being brutalized by these people that you just go about your lives. So what I have just described is more of a quiet nightmare. This is a really, really hard time. It's demoralizing. It's crushing. It's frustrating. It, it's enough to make you lose any sense of hope. But when all this happens for so long, it kind of becomes a little bloodless because there's no purpose behind it beyond gathering profit and accumulating services for the wealthy. There's nothing that is rewarding. Like, even before neoliberalism, people went to their jobs, they provided for their families, and yeah, they were tired at the end of the day, and they didn't have a lot of money, but, you know, they got by, and they were able to give their kids better lives. That mythology is going away, and what we find throughout history is that when mythologies that control societies go away, something needs to fill that vacuum. Something needs to give people purpose. That's where fascism comes from. Fascism and authoritarianism, particularly of the fascist variety, give people a purpose. They go along and they say, you don't have any money. And most of the time, they're talking to white men. They say, you don't have any money. You don't have any power. Put on the armband and you're going to have power. You're going to be some, part of something larger than yourself. You can even give up your life for the fascist movement. In that case, what's actually happening is that fascists and authoritarians are injecting religious-type meaning into a vacuum where people don't feel like they have anything that they can contribute, anything that they can do. And particularly, white men who are frustrated, like they are in America, they gravitate to this stuff. 
America has had many close calls with fascism. In fact, after the Great Depression, we had a ton of fascist movements, including an American Nazi movement that had a massive rally in Madison Square Garden with tens of thousands of people there to talk and congregate and support the American Nazi Party while there was a swastika standing next to a portrait of George Washington. In fact, there was an attempted coup to take over from FDR to keep him from changing around things with the New Deal. The point of what I'm telling you is that you have been told for probably your entire lives, it couldn't happen here, not in America. America is exceptional. But America actually has deep, deep fascistic roots. The thing that has kept it from happening, for the most part, is on-the-ground organization. It's been the struggle against fascism by the people all along. What's happening right now, as we face this crisis of neoliberal meaning, and we're frustrated, and we don't feel like the government is there for us, because, quite frankly, it's not there for us, we have options. We have not formulated an alternative. We have not figured out a different way to live that has taken hold and gained momentum. There are people who are working on that. And let me tell you who those people are. They are conservative nationalists, nationalist conservatives, or they are what's called traditionalists. These are people who believe that the problem with the world is that religion, and by the way, the obeyance of religion, has been taken out. And they look back into the 18th century when you have liberal revolutions in the United States of America and in France, and they say, you know what, you knock down the, the, the power of religion in government, right? Because we have the separation of church and state. In a liberal state, such as the United States, you say, you know what, the law doesn't come from a religious backing. It comes from my relationship to you, my liberty to do what I want, your liberty to do what you want, and where those two intermingle. The national conservatives and theocrats who are involved with this movement believe that the only way that we can move forward is by, much like they wanted to do, re-injecting religious control back into the public sphere. That means that they literally want to rewind the clock and go back to a period before liberal democracy existed. They don't care about democracy. They don't want more votes. That's not what they're interested in. They think that voting is a sham. They think that they are naturally better than you, much like the founders did, by the way. They believe that their vote should count for more than yours, which is why around the world you have seen the growth of illiberal democracy. This national conservative movement, and by the way, you probably saw this with Tucker Carlson going to Hungary to hang out with Viktor Orban. Viktor Orban scapegoated immigrants. He also talked about conspiracy theories, which, by the way, is a different way of explaining neoliberal globalism with, you know, secret shadowy forces, including always, you know, the idea of Jewish puppet masters, internal traders, all of that. It goes ahead and it spiritualizes what has actually happened economically and politically. So over in Hungary, Viktor Orban took over the government by scapegoating immigrants and by talking about George Soros and other Jewish puppet masters who were taking over the country. So what did they do? They rigged the elections. They censored the media. They took over the educational system. They closed their borders. And they created an illiberal democracy. The national conservatives want that. 
This is why they're doing everything that they're doing. They want to put in an order, a religious order, in which they would be at the top of the hierarchy. They call it natural right. They believe that some people are superior to others. By the way, it's always white, wealthy men, in case you're keeping track. And what they want to do is they literally want to overrun liberal democracy, just completely dismantle it, and create a new theocratic illiberal state. So what would that look like? How would that occur? What, what would our lives be like under this illiberal theocratic state? The chances are, at first, it would be kind of tense. There would be a lot of rioting. There would be fights in the street. There would be protests that would probably end up with blood running into the gutters. Because what they always do as they're cracking down on human rights and liberal democracy is they have to make people shut up. They have to make sure that you are afraid to go out and say, no, this isn't okay. I demand that I have my rights. They have to take those fascists, those thugs, and put them out in the street in order to crack your skull so you're afraid to go out there. The people that they can, they'll intimidate into silence. The other people, they'll get rid of. And we have to consider also with global climate change looming, they're going to have to get rid of a lot of people. And that's something that can lead to some really horrific circumstances. But at first, there will be clashes. And this goes back again to The Handmaid's Tale. That is something that Atwood talks about here. There are the initial sort of Civil War moments. A lot of it's going to be scattered violence. You're going to see some states that are going to move away and form coalitions with other states. It's going to be a balkanization of the United States. And I want to point, put a little bit of a pin in this and say, I don't think this is inevitable. I think that we're going to fight this back. I have thoughts on how we can do that. But Let's go ahead and talk about the consequences so we can get serious about this. So at first, that's what happens. But here's the terrifying thing, and this is something that Atwood gets right in her book. There are a lot of people who will go along with it. A lot of people like to look at Nazi Germany and uh, Italian fascism, and they say, you know, Hitler and Mussolini hypnotized people. Their speeches were too good. That's not what happened. What happened was that people had an economic and political reason to go along with it. The middle class in Italy and the middle class in Germany, they were fine with it because they weren't attacked. They weren't discriminated against. The Nazis and the fascists made sure that they were able to keep their property, that they were able to keep their jobs, that they were able to keep their places in society. You will have people in America, and we think about this, the idea that there could be some sort of theocratic dictatorship. We think that everybody will be in the streets fighting. That's not true. Not true at all. There would be some people who would welcome it, they would engage in it, and there would be other people who accept it and watch it and just don't say anything. They let it happen because it benefits them. And what happens after that? You start to see a crackdown. You start to see all of these tendrils of autocracy moving and working their way through. This is one of the reasons that we're dealing with the CRT situation. I should say CRT because it's not actually critical race theory. What they're actually trying to do, and I see this throughout history over and over and over again, is that you have people, uh, particularly autocrats and authoritarian figures, they go in and they make the teachers teach a different type of history. They make sure that all of their studies and all of their classes and all of their lessons are about how great the country is and how great the rulers are. And they make sure that they, you know, downplay the idea of protest or organization or even human rights. So that starts changing the way people think about the world. Meanwhile, 
the state becomes its own religion. They start looking at America, which is one of the reasons why Christian nationalism is on the rise. They start looking at things like the founding and they say, you know what, they didn't try and divide the church and state. What they actually tried to do is create a godly country. They were inspired by divine powers. The only reason that they do that is in order to increase their own power and their own control. So you'll have Christian nationalists who will say, you know what, the basis of America is Judeo-Christian values, so here are all the laws. All of a sudden, you know, gay Americans are fast up against the wall. Women become subjugated because that is one of the basis of the Christian law that they, they believe. Uh, you're going to see white supremacy run just absolutely rampant because Christian nationalism in the United States of America is run completely through with white supremacy. And then on top of it, here's a problem. Here is a major, major problem. We have created, in the last few decades, the largest surveillance system in the world. All of these corporations, who, by the way, you want to talk about Google, you want to talk about Apple, you want to talk about Facebook, you want to talk about any of the biggest corporations in the world, they work with authoritarians. They went over to China, and what did China say to them? They said, we need this stuff censored so we can control people. And they were like, yeah, absolutely. Just make sure that we're able to get the money and get the power. They're more than happy to work with authoritarians. In this case, the surveillance state that an authoritarian regime in the United States would use, you may not know this, it's already powered by these companies. Whenever the war on terror began, the United States did not have the technology they needed to surveil people around the world and within its own borders. They had to go to Facebook. They had to go to Apple. They had to go to Google. Those people are the ones who run the technocratic functions of the United States of America. And they have all the access to all of your data, everything that you've ever said online, every site that you've ever gone to, everything that you have ever said in confidence with other people. All of that is there. And I have to tell you, Margaret Atwood, for all of the nightmarish visions that she had in The Handmaid's Tale, she did not imagine just how technologically based this surveillance state could possibly be. Within The Handmaid's Tale, the horror is that there are spies among you, and there will certainly be spies among you. But that surveillance state that was created during the War of Terror, and which keeps growing and growing and growing, in which the United States looks for what they call total information awareness, which involves everything that you write, everything that you say on the phone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Imagine that in the wrong hands. Imagine that in the hands of people who are desperate to purge heretics, who are desperate to purge people who don't believe their orthodoxy, or people who oppose them politically. On the surface, from the outside, it would be disturbing, probably. Like if you were in Canada and you were in Europe, you'd look at it and you'd say, God, the Americans are getting really weird and religious and patriotic, and it seems very, very strange. But underneath the surface, it would be almost total control. The frightening thing in all of this, the chapter, again, something that Atwood wasn't able to see back at that time because the only people who knew about global climate change were the oil companies who were well aware of it starting in the 1970s. Some of them in the 50s, actually. You've got to consider what happens as the country shrinks, as the waters rise, 
And all of a sudden you have millions of climate refugees going from one state to the next. You have millions of climate refugees coming over the border. Suddenly you have excess people, you have shrinking resources, and you have an authoritarian regime that doesn't care about human life. Look what they did at the border under Donald Trump. They sterilized people. They kept them in cages. They put children in cages. And that's only the start of it. Because this authoritarian regime that we're talking about tonight would be very militaristic. And chances are it would glorify American empire. It would talk about the need for violence and overthrowing democratic rights in order to carry on the glory of America, which is what fascism wants and what fascism does. The idea that we are facing, the threat that we are dealing with that I've just outlined that actually goes ahead and, and takes, <laughs> takes the handmade tale, handmaid's tale and just ups it in ways that we, we couldn't even fathom maybe the first time we ever read it. It is one of the no, most nightmarish hellscapes I think that anybody could ever cook up. And all points are moving in that tra trajectory. They're all going in that direction at this point. We can't afford to let that happen. And we have to find a different type of meaning because neoliberalism has hollowed out our lives to the point where it's made us feel like everybody else is a competitor. It's made us feel like we're competing for the last dollar, right? We have to get ahead. We're like crabs in a bucket trying to get on top of one another. Um, our, our relationships have soured. Our, uh, our jobs have soured. All of these things, we feel alone. We feel isolated. We feel powerless. It's an illusion. If we can rediscover solidarity and we can rediscover trust and working together, there's way more of us than there are them. And I have to tell you, if there starts to be some momentum to dismantle neoliberalism and take down this theocratic national conservatism, we'll win and we'll knock this faith back. But you have to be clear-eyed about it. You have to understand what we're actually facing because this thing is ugly in a way that I don't think most people can even begin to put their heads towards. I think we'll beat it, but in order to beat it, you have to understand it. You have to know what it is and you have to know where it's going. Um, I, think, I, I think I got some time left. I'm happy to, to talk about this, take some questions, but I, again, I just wanna say, Thank you so much for, for having me in here and, and letting me talk about this. So much for coming. I tell you, Jared, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know you laid out on there, but I'm still stuck on the hand is quaint. <laughs> Compared to what we're facing, oh God! I, I, I'm hoping. I was hoping that um, because the Handmaid's TV show, and I, I do actually know people that don't want a Handmaid's Tale because they don't like those kinds of visual images. But there are millions of people who do watch it, yep. and. I'm hoping that if you watch that kind of thing, you have sufficient courage to to face what it is we're facing right now. Yeah, and, and, and I, I have to tell you that I think one of the 
one of the real benefits, because I've been teaching dystopian literature for a very long time. I've been studying it, thinking about it. Dystopian literature, what it does is it gives voice to both anxieties that are imagined, but also anxieties that are very, very real. And one of the reasons, of course, that The Handmaid's Tale gets written is because of the conservative revolution in the United States of America. And what you saw with that is Atwood, and again, an absolute brilliant term by Atwood, is that Atwood recognized that behind the glittery exterior of people like Margaret Thatcher and people like Ronald Reagan and all the flag waving and all of that, that there were really dangerous currents, right? There were, there were really dangerous thoughts that were being paved over. And of course, one of the worst things that Ronald Reagan ever did is that Ronald Reagan took white supremacy and gave it a veneer, right? He was able to say in this really disgusting thing in the 1980s, he would say, racism's over. There's no such thing as racism anymore, right? All laws and all ideas are now colorblind, which is preposterous, absolutely preposterous, especially as white supremacy and as, you know, uh, entrenched power were constantly uh, beating away at voting rights and individual liberties. And so Atwood looked at that and said, I'll tell you what, I'll pull the curtain back for you. I'll tell you what's actually happening here and where this thing is going. And the, the, the really amazing thing, and this is why The Handmaid's Tale works not only in the novel form, but in the, the television show form, she nailed it dead to rights. She knew exactly what was in these people's hearts. And, and I didn't mention this in, in the presentation, and I will real fast. You'll also notice in The Handmaid's Tale that it is a theocratic authoritarian regime, but they're also all hypocrites, right? Because, you know, and, and this isn't about Christianity. This isn't about actual religion. This is about people using that as a weapon, right? That's about people using an ideology to hurt people. You can be a Christian without wanting to enslave other people. You can have Christian values without wanting, you know, to, to turn women into incubators and without wanting to take away people's personal rights. It's people who recognize the advantage. So, for instance, I mentioned the national conservative movement that's growing, right? I mentioned the traditionalist. And if you, if you want to lose some sleep this weekend, everyone, go and look these two groups up. But what you will find with both of them, they don't actually believe in this stuff. They don't actually believe in Christianity. They think it's a really useful idea, right? They think it's a great story that you can trap people in and make them obedient. But if you look at Gilead, or, or Gilead, if you look at Gilead within The Handmaid's Tale, what you notice is the most powerful people, they don't believe this stuff. They work within it, right? Because they want to benefit themselves. And so I, it, Atwood killed it. Absolutely. And that was um, Professor Jared Yates Sexton. He is the co-host of the Mudrake podcast. And if you are interested in hearing more of the session at If America Fails, the Coming Tyranny at our TruthWorks Network channel, you can go to ifamericafails.live and uh, pick up the link to the full broadcast on uh, 
Thursday night, January 13th. He made some powerful, powerful points, but he also highlighted the path to how easily it would be how easy it would be to slip into an authoritarian form of government in this country. And one of the things I want to point out about all of this, I realized that the way that Margaret Atwood, and I read the book on uh, when it was first published, within the first week or so, I pre-ordered it, and the Hulu TV production, uh, it seems to be very white. I always say it's it's really kind of white. And a lot of black people say, oh, it's too white. It's all about white people. Well, we have to learn to synthesize nuance. Because one of the things in episode two that Dr. Cynthia Ann Barron pointed out is that in the book, all the black people are in the colonies cleaning up toxic fields or they are dead, that some genocide went on. So uh, I really encourage you, after hearing this section of the session that we had with uh, Professor Yates Sexton, his name is Jared Yates Sexton, you can find him on Twitter, he has a website, and his podcast is The Mud Rake. Um, to follow him and to read the many books that he has written on this subject, and I don't have the titles in front of me, but we will post it at ourcommonground.com. Thank you so much for being with us. And I want to underscore, black people are running around talking about uh, how unhappy well, the media is is running around reporting how unhappy black people are after the voting rights bills were killed on Tuesday. Um, and unhappy about the voting rights violations that are going on, and we're going to talk about that in the next hour. Um, we have to understand that this country is broken. And when it breaks, we are the first layer under the rubble. We can talk about all of these things. I mean, people are really, black people are really running around, and I get a lot of emails, and I get, you know, people talk to me all the time, uh, and they said, oh, they're not going to do anything, and they can forget it. Trump's never going to go to prison. We can't get mired in the chaos and the confusion that is being created by all of this. And one of the things that I always say on this broadcast, I try to really embed it in our listeners' uh, framework for thinking, is that black people understand this system better than anybody. And when black people 
are saying it's broken. Nobody was listening. But I'm hoping a lot of people will begin to listen. Um, We're going to take a break right now. Our number is 347-838-9852. And when we come back, we're going to be talking more about the broken system, the failure of our Justice Department to curtail what's going on in the states uh, right now in 2021. The state legislative push to restrict access to voting was not only aggressive, it was also successful. Between January 1, 2021 and December 7, 2021, at least 19 states had passed 34 laws restricting access to voting, more than 440 bills with provisions that restrict voting access has been introduced in 49 states in the 2021 legislative sessions. These numbers are are, are extraordinary. Uh, State legislatures enacted far more restrictive voting laws in 2021 than any year since these statistics um, that they've been tracking voting legislation, and that was in 2011. More than a third of all restrictive voting, voting laws enacted since then were passed this year. The momentum continues. And there are some solutions to this alarming and unprecedented attack. And we can't run around and say, well, why, didn't the, why isn't the Congress doing something? The House of Representatives presented the bills uh, before the Senate. The Senate continues in their uh, claim and weaponization of the filibuster. And you, you even have, I don't know how many, you have... Um, people in the Senate who voted before for the um, renewal of the Voting Rights Act but won't vote for these two bills. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Shelby versus Holder, which was a landmark uh, Supreme Court decision regarding the constitutionality of two provisions in the Voting Rights Act, Section Five, which you need to understand in order to understand what is happening. Tonight here at Our Common Ground, we're talking about anocracy. And you may not understand. Let me provide a definition. Anocracy is a political system that is neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic and it is always vulnerable to political instability. That is what we are living with. And in this episode of Our Common Ground, we're, we're trying to raise the issues and the information that you need around the rapid weaponization of states' rights 
in the effort to take control of power in government and thwart the rights of the people by disassembling the democratic process, disfiguring the voting rights and agency of American citizens, and democracy, which protects that agency. So we're going to be talking about that when when we come back. We thank you so very much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Don't you go nowhere. We'll be right back. But basically, you knew that somehow you were black. But for the first time, we have a generation of people as a consequence of our success who now have the option not to be black. And the reason for that is because our struggles have made it possible for them to assimilate. Assimilation does not mean that they have been able to enter into cooperation with, preserving their identity with the identity of others, but they have lost themselves in somebody else's identity. listening to our common ground with Janice Graham. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. I think it's very apt that for the basis of this discussion that you have gestured towards the handmaid's tale because what we are actually looking at right now the circumstances and the crises that we are facing uh, it, it is not just white patriarchal dominion we are talking about white patriarchal theocratic dominion the really frightening thing and i'll get more into this as we go along is that The Handmaid's Tale, while it is like a horrific, nightmarish dystopia, it might turn out to be dated by the fact that it was created and written in the era that it was. And the circumstances that we now face based with surveillance, technology, uh, all, all of the tools that an aspiring theocratic dictator or authoritarian might have at their disposal could make The Handmaid's Tale look quaint almost in comparison. Something was gaining force and momentum and, and, and power within America. Um, I saw some really ugly stuff in these rallies. I heard conversations among people about civil wars. Uh, I heard talk about arresting journalists and politicians, executing them. Um, you know, obviously, I heard a lot of anti-democratic authoritarian type activity. And back in 2016, as I was doing this and going into these rallies, I, I was suspicious and I knew what I had seen, but I was not able to put together the puzzle pieces yet because the American education system does not tell you what is going on. It does not explain why we have arrived at this current moment 
in our political and, and, and social situation. It, it doesn't. It doesn't present to us the vocabulary needed. It doesn't prepare us to recognize growing authoritarianism. It doesn't give us the ability to understand what is going on. Uh, in my own life, because I saw this and it freaked me out, quite frankly, and I started ringing the, ringing the alarm bell, I was being told by people constantly, it was like, you're being hysterical, you have no idea what you're talking about, uh, the American political system will spit Donald Trump out, there's no possibility that he could ever be president, uh, you know, this is just a fad, the people that you're hearing are not representative of a larger movement. And what I noticed, though, was that my instincts were proving correct, not just as Donald Trump was elected president of the United States of America, but as what I was witnessing started to coalesce and metastasize. Before I go forward and talk about what I've learned, I want to state very clearly and very definitively, this conversation that we're having tonight about the dangers that we're facing, this is not just about Donald Trump. This, and he is an incredibly dangerous individual. But Donald Trump is not an ideologue. Donald Trump is not a competent, principled person. Donald Trump is more or less a bull in a china shop who, through his self-serving narcissism and lack of utter shame, made it apparently clear to the right wing and to a lot of the people that I'm going to talk about tonight that liberal democracy, the United States of America, and the institutions that we have learned to trust, that they are broken. And not just broken, but that they could be overrun via authoritarian ideas. So as we talk about this, I will mention Donald Trump, but this is not just about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a symptom of a larger disease. He is not the disease proper. This thing has been churning and growing for much, much longer than, Donald, than when Donald Trump came down the golden escalator in Trump Tower in New York City. So I've had to do the background research into what is happening, and to be honest, it is very clear how we've arrived at this point. It's very clear why we face the problems that we do. It's the denial and the delusion of the people who are responsible for trying to stop it or even to cover it and talk about it that exacerbates the problem. Professor Jared Yates Sexton joined If America Fails the Coming Tyranny in its premiere episode, America Under Siege, The Color of Autocracy. We invite you to join us on January 20th for Episode 2, America Under Siege, Cults, Cultures, and Religion. Our panelists include Dr. Cynthia Ann Barron. She is the Associate Professor of Theater and Film at Bowling Green State University. And Reverend Dr. Susan K. Williams. Reverend Smith is the founder and executive of Crazy Faith Ministries. We hope you'll join us in this urgent discussion, If America Fails, live streaming at the TruthWorks Network YouTube channel. If America Fails, Thursday, January 20th, Episode 2, America Under Siege, Cults, Cultures, and Religion, 8 p.m. And America Fail. Are you sure?
basically I screwed up on that one. I'm sorry, Michelle. Uh, that was our promo for If America Fails, a com- the coming tyranny for the episode that broadcast this past Thursday. But coming up uh, this Thursday, January 27th, is America Under Siege, Sex, Wombs, and God. And our guest will be Frank Schaefer. And we hope that you'll join us. That's Thursday night, January 27th. 2022 at 8 p.m. at the TruthWorks Network uh, YouTube channel live. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. If I come for you, I will wear high heels so you can hear my approach on the cobblestones and have time to repent. You listen for my footsteps. And now, back to Janice. Anything that this country had seen following the abolition of slavery. 
But in February 1869, Congress approved what we know as the 15th Amendment. It was adopted in 1870, which guaranteed that a citizen, guaranteed a citizen's right to vote would not be denied on account of race, color, or previous condition of certitude. And the in 1866, when the Congress passed America's first, that was America's first civil rights law, public and legal opinions had been very divided on whether the federal government uh, could override states' rights in attempting to ban racial discrimination nationwide. And there were some key provisions of the 14th Amendment that dealt with racial equality and they were largely ignored in the South, and those efforts are now being exercised throughout the nation. But let me kind of tell you what happened. On June 25th, 2013, uh, inside the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and I apologize, I said 1968, but the Voting Rights Act uh, was passed in 1969. And there was a section of that act which required certain states and local governments to obtain federal preclearance before implementing any changes to their voting laws or practices. And in Section 4B contained the coverage formula that determined which jurisdictions were subject preclearance based on their histories of discrimination in voting. Now, here's the thing, and this is why you are seeing the states pulling back, enacting voting access and voting rights for people. On June 25th in 2013, the Supreme Court ruled, and this effort was led by the Supreme Court Senior Justice, Justice in Charge, John Roberts, which is why the Federalist Society supported him in his nomination to the Supreme Court when he was nominated by George W. Bush. The court ruled by a five to four vote that that section 4B was unconstitutional because the coverage formula was based on data that was over 40 years old. Now we all know, hashtag Mitch please, that only two days ago, the minority leader of the U.S. Senate indicated that black people go and vote as much as Americans go and vote, implied that somehow black people are not Americans. So the formula was based, so the courts ruled that the formula was based on data over 40 years old, making it no longer responsive to current needs. At the time, research showed that preclearance led to increases 
in minority congressional representation and minority turnout. Five years after this ruling, nearly 1,000 U.S. polling places had been closed. Many of them, most of them, in predominantly African-American counties. And the research showed that changing and reducing voting locations can reduce voter turnout. Folks, foundation of what we see in 13 bills restricting access to voting have been pre-filed for the 2022 legislative sessions in four states. And at least 152 restrictive voting bills in 18 states will carry over to 2021. And these early indicators, coupled with the ongoing mobilization around the big lie, the same false rhetoric about voter fraud that drove this year's unprecedented wave of voter suppression bills suggests that efforts to restrict and undermine the vote will continue to be a serious threat. And I really question whether or not any organizing, even monumental organizing, is going to turn this around. Let me share with you a report, and on the other side of it, we can talk about it. Our number is 347 they came from all 50 states. Out of some sense of patriotic duty. So much more than just rallying for President Trump. It's really rallying for our way of life. The American dream against fake news. To protest an election they believed had been stolen. We're here, patriots. We're in Washington, D.C. Capitol building dead in front of us. Their day of action would be January 6th when Congress would count electoral ballots and ratify the 2020 election results. For some, it was just a rally for their president. For others, it was a call to arms. We have the power in numbers. March on Congress directly after Trump's speech. In the weeks beforehand, there were over a million mentions on social media of storming the Capitol. Maps were shared of the building's layout. There was talk of bringing weapons and ammunition, and discussion over which lawmakers should be targeted first. This anger was based on a lie. This election was a fraud. A lie that had grown more frenzied after the election. President Trump won this election. They were flipping votes. Steal the election in Philadelphia. When you win in a landslide, and they steal the election in Atlanta. And it's rigged. Steal the election in Milwaukee. It's not acceptable. This is outrageous. 
a lie spread by the president and his closest allies. Let's call out cheating when we find it. Some of whom stoked calls for violence. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Everyone's going to remember who actually stands in the breach and fights tomorrow and who goes running off like a chicken. We bleed freedom. This will be their Waterloo. And we will sacrifice for freedom. This will be their destruction. What happens next was chaos. They broke the glass. Insurrection. Take it down! Death. Then there began a campaign to whitewash history, starting at the top. It was a zero threat. Right from the start, it was zero threat. And spreading throughout the Republican Party. Even calling it insurrection, uh, it wasn't. By and large, it was all it was peaceful protest. One lawmaker who helped barricade the House doors now suggests there was barely any threat. You didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th? You would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. A tourist visit? This was not. And the proof is in the footage. Multiple states are working to change voting laws this year ahead of the midterm elections. In 2021, 19 states passed laws that added restrictions to how people vote. The Brennan Center for Justice, a progressive organization, has identified 88 restrictive bills that have carried over into this year's legislative session. A new article on CBSNews.com looks into where these laws are being considered and what could happen in the year ahead. And Adam Brewster wrote that piece, and he's here to talk a little bit more about it. So, you know, Adam, the thing about it, the 2020 election is that there were a lot of exceptions made because of the pandemic that made it a lot easier for people to vote. And uh, the hope was that some of those would stick. Uh, many of them are not. In fact, there are even more restrictive um, things sort of coming in, policies coming into place. And certainly we saw a lot of action last year, especially regarding um, ways to vote absentee and ways to vote by mail. And that's what a lot of states are looking at doing again this year. Uh, you're seeing things about potentially shortening uh, the time that it takes to request an absentee ballot or adding ID requirements or, you know, changing uh, some of the regulations regarding drop boxes. These are many of the things we saw states around the country enact last year, in addition uh, to certainly other sorts of measures. And, you know, you, you look at Georgia, one of the Republican leaders in the Senate has introduced a bill that would ban absentee ballot drop boxes uh, in the state. Uh, last year, there was a law change to sort of reduce the number of absentee ballot uh, drop boxes that counties could set up. Uh, Florida, Ron DeSantis has talked about um, adding an election integrity unit and sort of putting more rules around security at drop boxes. Missouri and Arizona are among states uh, that are looking to add new ID requirements uh, in terms of voting. So it's a lot of the same measures that we saw states put in place last year. You know, we talked a lot about Georgia and Texas uh, and Florida and Iowa, but there are many other states uh, that sometimes didn't necessarily pass those huge bills that took, uh, you know, large sections of election law and made big changes, but, you know, sometimes went through one by one, made changes on a more individual. Uh, Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to Janice. Here's the deal, folks. Uh, in addition to suppressing your citizenship by restricting your ability to vote or your access to voting, these people are gerrymandering 
districts. And we all know that whichever party controls the state legislature will be able to redraw the lines based on data from the 2020 census, which was restricted by the Trump administration. We, We are not sure, and nobody's talking about it, but we are not sure if we have an adequate 2020 census. But gerrymandering predates the 2020 election. And the issue is for us to understand as black people that these people are not coming to play. And that, and, and, and I will talk about it more next week, uh, but there are various kinds of movements that's supporting this activity. I know I said that I was going to try to get into this, the redoubters, and Jared Sexton uh, did reference uh, some of the organizations, but the redoubters is a big movement in Idaho, Oklahoma, Minnesota, uh, Michigan. So we've got to be real about what we're doing at the state legislature in order to thwart their plan. And they've got a plan. And unfortunately, we have not had an adequate plan. And um, I'm not going to say that we are um, losing, but there are people out there losing hope. Well, folks, at the end of this um, broadcast tonight, I'll be entering my 72nd uh, entrance. And I had promised you that we would have an online birthday party. We get ready to party for real You know, like, here's my favorite song. I'm I'm sharing some stuff with you. Our number is 347-838-9852. My family hates this song. I love this. I'm really into Afrobeats lately. You you know, you could get really, really into that beat. You could do... Michelle, you could do yoga, you could do exercise to Afrobeat. You see? But there's not a birthday song on Afrobeat, so you can't find a birthday song. But this song is called Woza. I mean, that's the song. i 
one of the beats uh, during the holidays. My daughter has this fancy refrigerator, and you can like Bluetooth your 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 Pandora and whatever your music, and the refrigerator has speakers, and you play your stuff. And this was my song, and the only person that had any appreciation for it was M2. He and I put our little choreograph together and did our exercise, and I showed him how he could practice to uh, dribble his basketball, and we were really into it. (laughs) Yeah, we had a good time. We've got a call here. 781, it's a Massachusetts number, and I got an idea. Thank you for calling Our Common Ground. I know you love that Afrobeat thing too, right? 781, you're on the air. Did she fall asleep or something? Okay. Um, here's a another one of... 781, you're on the air. I'm getting a signal that you're still there, but it doesn't sound like you're still there. Okay. So for my birthday, I decided. Well, hello, 781. Thank you for your call. I thought you had fallen asleep or something. (laughs) No, I just wanted to call They call up the show and they fall asleep. (laughs) No, but I wanted to call and wish you a happy birthday and many blessings into your new age. And I'm excited to hear what has for you. Well, thank you so very much. And for those of you who are listening, you may not know, but I think that this is my grand princess. Yes, I do. Thank you so much for uh, calling up. Were you been with us all, all the entire show? Majority of it, yes. Oh, okay. Well, thank you for your well wishes, uh, your love, and uh, since the day that you have born, were born, has been a, a blessing in my life, and you are treasured, and you give me uh, 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 inspiration to be better, to do better, to be the best grandmother that I can possibly be. And thank you so much. You, uh, We have been missing each other, but I'm going to be with you on your birthday this year. I promise that. Uh, we've been missing birthdays, and I do miss you. Um, when um, on special days, but I really love that. Did Did you like the Wozer thing? I I don't know. Your Your mother didn't like the Wozer thing, but I love the Wozer thing. I just laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've been listening to a lot of West African music lately. <laughs> yeah, I have. I really have. You know, like I, I've been really into the videos of the Jerusalem dance challenge that happened all over the country. But I, I, I miss being with you. I miss us going out and you stopping by and all that stuff. But I know that we FaceTime, we, we, we talk almost uh, 
every couple of days, and thank you so much. I will miss you on your birthday. Let me let me tell you what I did do for my birthday. You know those little ice cream things with the nuts and the chocolate on top? Yes. I, I bought a box of those. <laughs> that's my birthday treat when I have my birthday party tomorrow that's what, what I'll be having but I know you would have brought the little fancy cakes that you always provide and um, make cakes and cupcakes and all that stuff so Grand Princess Imani thank you so very much I'm going to I think your mother's on the other line for some reason. I, you know, I can't remember telephone numbers much. Eight four seven, eight five seven. You're on the air. Thank you for joining us. Hello. You're on the air. Eight five seven. Hi. Oh, M two. You're on the air. Happy birthday. Thank you, my love. Thank you, my love. My honeypot. No, no, no. I'm, I know. I told people that I can't call you honeypot anymore. I have to call you HP. So <laughs> thank mm-hmm. you so much for calling up the show. You're up late. Um, yeah, <laughs> well, it's a Saturday night. <laughs> and guess who's on the other line? Imani's still on the air. Imani, say hi to HP. Mm-hmm. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Moni. <laughs> See, I got a, it's the I got the hook up on line. the birthday party. Mason, did Happy you hear birthday, my woes Thank you, my darling daughter. Thank you so very much. Um, wow, this is a nice surprise. You guys have never called up this show in all these all these years. Oh, Tara, when you were young, I you called, used to call I, in our Go ahead. I called you um, last. I called you last year on the show. Oh, okay, okay. Well, mm-hmm. thank you so when you had your party. so very much. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, you and your family are are just beyond everything uh, in my life. Oh, we love and you so much. And I'm gonna I'm gonna play. Don't go away because I'm gonna play this song because mm-hmm. you all taught me this song during the holidays, and it's another one of my favorites. Michelle, you gonna like this too, Otis? You go. I know Otis is gonna. And and Greta, you got to get on the good foot here. Here you go. That's a song that is always ringing in your car, and you know I picked it up. <laughs> so, it's part of my birthday playlist. See, Michelle, you got to get with this. We got old Henry in the Okay, everybody can break out the, the bourbon now. Yeah, I I picked that up over the holidays. I spent, many of you might not know, when I was off the air for a month and a half, I was spending the holidays 
with my family in New England. And Tara was a wonderful, wonderful host. Uh, Mason was a wonderful, wonderful host. He was my buddy. We had stuff going on all the time. And Imani was dropping by. We had all the, I told you all, we had matching pajamas for Christmas morning. Um, So um, this family is just a wonderful family, and I'm so glad that I'm in it. Uh, and as I go into my 72nd year uh, at the end of this broadcast, the beam that shines brightest in my life are these three people, and I don't know where the fourth one is. He's kicked back somewhere. Uh, they are the the beacon that makes me, you know, one of the reasons that I do this, uh, I continue to do this because you all know that I have threatened to go off the air, retire, whatever, is because my family depends upon the community, a community that respects, loves, resists and struggles for them as they do for you. And if we are not clear about who we are as a collective, we're going to be lost, folks. We've got to have a plan for our future. We've got to reach back to the spirit of our ancestors who struggled in far more oppressive and dark days than we. And I'm so proud of my granddaughter. I, you know, I, I know I brag about her all the time and my daughter, and I, I, I brag, her, uh, brag about her all, all the time. Um, somebody just in the in the chat room said, I call my son HP. Um, Hunter Patrick is his name. Well, I call my grandson, my grand prince, HP, because until he came of age, he was always my honeypot. So I will always, he will always be uh, my HP. Um, thank you, Hunter Patrick. Um, I share a birthday with one of our listeners, um, Howard Brandon, and every year he sends me greetings. Um, and I have gotten my greeting from from Howard tonight. Thank you, Howard, for for that. Um, So, um, Tara, Imani, and HP, thank you so very much for uh, joining me for my online birthday party. And uh, here it is. This is the last piece of music, y'all. Greta, you ready? Michelle, you ready? Oh, Henry, don't be trying to do a line dance to my music. 
that's my jam. That's that's my that's that's my jam. So uh, I had to play play that for my my birthday party. I, I've got this long playlist. I must have five hundred um, pieces of music in um, my um, in iTunes because I just jam and jam and jam. Um, especially, and here's another one. You know, when 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 I when I play that song, Imani. One of the things that I think about is the original uh, call-out for this broadcast was speaking truth to power and ourselves. And I I really keep that in mind. Tara, that music, um, you, you, you know this music because this is what we do. You know, I can't pull out Nancy Wilson for the birthday party, but I will pull out Nancy Wilson for the birthday. Uh, I'll pull out little Jimmy Scott. I'll pull out some um, some Miles Davis and some Nina Simone um, with my little uh, vanilla cream cake because I'm not with my family. And Imani would have had a German chocolate cake or something like that. Um, Tara would have been making uh, stuffed salmon um, in shells, which I cannot do. But anyway, so um, thank you uh, all for the birthday wishes. I have lots of birthday wishes, (coughs) excuse me, uh, on my um, Facebook page and on Twitter. And... I continue to resolve for my life as Amanda Gorman reminded us. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. Don't forget to trust your struggle. <coughs> I still got this cough. I apologize. I really do apologize. But for every amount of achievement as a people that we have made, it is because we have trusted our struggle. And we have to see the tribe, my tribe, with Imani and Miles and HP and Tara, that is my tribe. And I invite people into my village. And that's what we have to do. And we have to make sure we're inviting the right people. Um, let me tell you about our book we always do on the fourth um, Saturday of the month. 
poet French is going to be with us week after next, opening up our Black History Month. He is the author of Born in Blackness. It is a book that talks that takes us through the trade of colonial North America. And he says that the way we think about history is entirely wrong. It is a magnificent, powerful, and absorbing book. The problem is not just that the people and cultures of Africa have been ignored and left to one side, he says. Rather, they have been so miscast that the story of the global past has become become part of a profound mistelling. He writes with excellence and elegance. Uh, He is a former distinguished foreign correspondent, and he writes with the passion of someone deeply committed to providing a corrective. It's not comfortable or comforting reading, but it is beautifully done, and it is a masterpiece. And he gives us the evidence that Africans made the new world economically viable, and the way in which he presents it is overwhelming, and he repeatedly circles back over material revealing a lost world that we are, taught, we are not taught in our schools. I have, during the holidays when I was with my family, I read Marlon James' The Book of Night Women, and um, during the Black History Month, we'll be talking about that. And right now, I'm reading with my reading group, uh, Feminist Reading Circle, Black Feminist Reading Circle, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois by Honoré Jeffers, and it is wonderful. Thank you all for being with us, and thank you for, thanks to my family for calling in and wishing me a happy birthday and all the texts and Facebook posts, and we will see you next Saturday night, Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time. I've got one minute to be this eight.
Today is my birthday. I buy myself a cake, purple candles, pinky wishes, grateful for becoming. I love simple celebrations. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday to me. This country has been surprised by the way the world looks now. They don't know if they want to be Matt Dillon or Bob Dillon. They don't know if they want to be diplomats or continue the same policy of nuclear nightmare diplomacy. John Foster Dulles ain't nothing but the name of an airport now. The idea concerns the fact that this country wants nostalgia. They want to go back as far as they can, even if it's only as far as last week. Not to face now or tomorrow, but to face backwards. And yesterday was the day of our cinema heroes riding through. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday to me. So if I played 400 rounds of Monopoly with you and I had to play and give you every dime that I made, and then for 50 years, every time that I played, I, if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa and like they did in Rosewood, how can you win? How can you win? Ay, como cuando tú estás conmigo Y hasta creerá ¿Qué te dirá? Mami, te quiero Pero si una tara de seguir Las cartenias de mi amor Se mueren So they're moving ahead with a plan, y'all, but I, we seem to be in some kind of virtual loop here. And we got to get ourselves out of it. And we got to get out of out quick. Ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. Yes, today is my birthday. And for all of you who are asking how old I am, I will only say I am no longer the youngest in the room. Incredibly, this is the only Saturday that I have celebrated my birthday since we went to weekly programming. You have been my family for 34 years. I want to thank you for all the love, all the support, for all of the birthday greetings and well wishes ways that you have made me a better person as I go into the new year and proud of what I do as my life's work. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing and all your well wishes and welcome into my new year. But then-
And now, back to Janet. And good night, and thank you so much. Have a good week.